Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. My name is Luke Mason. And Luke, I wanted you to know that I think you're a hoopy frood. A <laughs> hoopy frood? What what makes you say that about me? What are what are the attributes about me that remind you of hoopy fruityism? Well, you know, you're a pretty chill, really cool guy who's gone on lots of adventures. <laughs> oh, thanks. I just wanted to know if you remember to bring your towel everywhere that you go. Well, only if I need some dry humor. Well, you're quite <laughs> quite uh, adept at that. <laughs> I always bring Towley. You always bring... I'll just get a little high. <laughs> Towley. <laughs> got that? I did. You got the you got the code? No. It's a melody to Funky Town. Take me if... down to <laughs> Funky Town. I wonder if Towley is supposed to be a representative of... Douglas Adams' vision. <laughs> You're the worst character ever, Tally. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so yes, I always bring a towel. Oh, good. Because today we're going to be talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, the yes. 1979 novel by Douglas Adams, which was then adapted by Garth Jennings into a film called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in 2005. Yes, that is correct. We are not doing the film, we're doing the book. Yeah, I actually have never seen the movie. Which is a little hard to believe, I guess, because it was really popular when it came out. Yeah, and I mean, the book is is pretty massively popular, too, but more before our time, really, I would say. I suppose so, yeah. I actually have never read the book until for this podcast, and I've never seen the movie. So this is a kind of a fun little dive into something for me where I am completely... I guess it's kind of like what it would have been for you when we did our Aladdin episode, how... Aladdin was culturally saturating, and yet you had never experienced it before. And I, I mean, Hitchhiker's Guide is obviously not quite Aladdin level of fame, but it's still pretty fame. I mean, when that I remember when that movie came out, it was like huge. Everyone was talking about it. It had a lot of acclaim to it. So I don't know. I just never was saw it. <laughs> you were just you <laughs> and I never read the book either. That that level of nerd nerd. Well, I'd never read the book, so I probably wasn't allowed to watch it. <laughs> Right, right. That's an important rubric. <laughs> yes. I think that this book, it's interesting because it's probably one of the most pertinent for a certain subgenre of internet culture. And the leader now, I say, would say of that subgenre is Elon Musk. He absolutely loves Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He frequently references it on Twitter. Really? Yes. What were some of the parts of it? Uh, that he 42, liked. 42, the improbability drive, 
um, Marvin the depressive robot. <laughs> that is kind of, I mean, if you think about it, he's it's also kind of his age, right? Because it came out in 1979, and he, I'm sure he read it growing up. So. Sure, yeah. Uh, but it became, its second kind of wave of popularity was um, through the internet age and, yeah. and people getting it. So, so when you say Elon Musk... Sorry, he's like the leader of, of that the kind sub-genre of subgenre that, of that loves him and okay. culture. Now, but does he like the book because of how it stirred his imagination, or because he actually sees some potential in these ideas for no, his I, own space exploration? <laughs> well, I hope I hope, I hope it's the, be the former and not the latter. But uh, <laughs> that's what I assumed. But it, it wasn't mean, quite clear. If the improbability drive is a thing, that would be a. Uh, that would be a thing for sure. <laughs> but I mean, like he is obviously just using the kind of fun little parts of the book as things that got his imagination going. Exactly. And I think if you were going to put this book into a genre, it would be in the Monty Python vein of uh, humor. It's right. uh, ridiculous, constantly surprising you, but overall... A little bit British, even very, though it's <laughs> very, set in outer space. Exactly. At both... Douglas Adams and the and the Flying Circus crew are all from England, obviously. So it's got a very dry sense of humor. Lots of references to tea, as usual. <laughs> but uh, yeah, tea is like the all-encompassing salve, right? Like if everything's going, anything's going wrong for Arthur, the main character in this book, he just needs some tea. In fact, I mean, there's even a reference by Zaphod at one point where he's like, "Well, we could just replace his brain with electron or with a." Like a computer one, all it would need to say is what I don't understand what's going on and where's the tea. <laughs> yeah, good roast is that. Is it is it Zaphod or Zaphod? Actually, it's Zaphod. You're right. Zaphod. Zaphod. Yeah. Okay. Zaphod. So I guess uh, this is not an incredibly plot driven book, <laughs> but it's more of a um, what ridiculous thing can we throw at the audience now sort of tale. Yeah, it definitely struck me as a humor-driven book. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> Douglas Adams is definitely a humorist, and also, I would say, an uh, amateur philosopher. He's, right. He's trying to, through humor, as most comedians do, dig into the deeper questions of life and meaning and yeah, and what's going on, but also do it, but doing that through humor. You know what the actual... So... <laughs> This will be a book we do in a future episode because it's so funny, too. But the humor of this book reminded me most of Catch-22. Because Catch-22 and, I guess, Hitchhiker's Guide has a, has, a, has a type of humor where the author, so Douglas Adams in this book, he sets up a scenario. Like, he sets up something kind of in a very normal way of setting up a like it could be a character, it could be a situation the characters are facing, it could be like a, there's a there's a little bit of a premise or a preamble given just for him to give the opposite reaction to it that you would expect. And in Catch-22, it's similar too, where Catch-22, there'll be an entire paragraph set up so that Joseph Heller, the author, will say, and that's what didn't happen. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> kind of thing. And, and I sense that too, is like a, a lot of the jokes are in Hitchhiker's Guide are kind of offbeat, opposite way of what you might expect the line to go. And and there's a lot of wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the reader, like fairly constantly. And you see this a lot in British literature. You even see it in 
in Narnia. But like I think Douglas Adams kind of perfected that particular niche of British literature where he's he's constantly breaking the fourth wall. It's very cheeky. It's very cheeky. Yeah, there's a cheeky <laughs> there's a cheekiness to it that is like this book very clearly is aware of the audience. Yes. In a way that a lot of I guess novels I mean, it's its own genre of novel, but not Hitchhiker's Guide, but there's Hitchhikers would fit into the genre of novel where the author is almost explicitly just talking to the reader. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so I'll go through the really short summary of the plot. Basically, there's a character named Arthur Dent. He seems to be a fairly normal guy with not a lot going for him, except he likes his house. Turns out that uh, his house is going to be torn down to create an overpass and he but was like uh i think they call it a super pass yeah like the there's an intergalactic no 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 no. so his house his oh, actual oh, right house. right and so he's and in a cosmic turn of events and it turns out <laughs> that also earth itself is about to be bulldozed over through a super pass for, for a right for like a, there's a for there's an intergalactic a, space a freeway going <laughs> a, a british freeway going through his his, his, his personal house and then his, his you know, cosmic freeway earth. going through earth <laughs> Exactly, and and then so because he's befriended this Hoopy Fruid named Ford Prefect, Ford. and what does Hoopy Fruid mean again, David? For <laughs> just good a, listeners out there, <laughs> just a, a super chill, cool guy who's you know got it all together and kind of you know fun to be around. <laughs> he has befriended Ford, and well, Ford has befriended him as he's lived through the boring existence of fifteen years on Earth that he's absolutely hated and been trying to get off of for the last fifteen years. Finally, they get off the planet. Uh, they're thrown in through a series of events, thrown out of a sh- of the construction ship that they're on into uh, uh, open space, and because of a improbability drive on a ship, they are saved with tw- with one second left to go before they would die of of asphyxiation, and proceed to go on a little adventure through the cosmos with the president of the intergalactic empire, whose name is Zaphod. And Zaphod Brebelbrox, I believe. <laughs> Brebelbrox, yes, uh, who is an interesting character in and of himself. And he happens to have picked up a girl that Arthur was interested in on Earth named Trisha, but she goes by Trillion now. So that's the basic, very, very short plot. But I think what I wanted to talk about uh, with... Well, and then they go to this planet called Magrathia. Right. And Magrathia was actually, interesting enough, five million years before a planet that made planets. Mm-hmm. So it's it uh, their I guess their industry and it was like a mythical like a story that people told their kids like oh careful or the Magrathians will get you kind of like a boogeyman style of well the the line myth. I like is it was what parents tell their children if they want them to become economists <laughs> <laughs> because the Magrathia crashed the, the galactic economy by sucking or by taking about half the wealth for themselves while they were creating planets for those the super well yeah and that's actually a great example of a hitchhiker's guide joke because you know what kid wants to be an economist (laughs) but however in the universe well the universe in this book uh I guess there are enough young scarcity and you know <laughs> the distribution of goods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um yeah, I mean I think I read this book uh when I was about fourteen or fifteen. My friend Patrick Chateau introduced it to me. He was very much involved in that internet world of 
um, at the time would have been forums and discussion groups and and chat and, rooms and chat rooms <laughs> and all of these um, MSN Messenger. There was it was a <laughs> yeah exactly and it, there was a um, a culture that developed on the internet in my teens. I would say that this was a one of the corner the cornerstones of that culture, and so uh, we read it all as a group of friends, and I was. I I very distinctly remember the portion of the book where the sperm whale is brought into existence and laughing my head off at its short series of thoughts before it crashes into the planet and dies. <laughs> yeah, there's uh there's a scene where the ship that they were on was it the it's was called it? the Golden Heart. Right. So the Golden Heart is approaching Magrathia. They think no one lives there, but they still have a, like a missile defense system, so they shoot missiles at it. And the uh, it's the improbability drive. Turn. Arthur Dent flips the improbability drive. Yeah, and so one of the missiles turns into a sperm whale, and the other one <laughs> and the other one turns into a bowl full of petunias. Yes, which only thought as it's crashing towards the ground is not again. Yeah, <laughs> which is another hilarious. Yeah, uh, uh, so that, Douglas Adamism. I mean, it's not really important how the improbability drive works. I guess no, it's I don't just... think it's really explained. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. By harnessing the power of probability and improbability, it could be everywhere in the universe simultaneously at the same time. Yeah. Which, if you can... I mean, I guess maybe we're supposed to imagine that what it does is it scrambles the atomic structure of the of something. Yeah. And <laughs> the improbability of scrambling the atoms of a missile in such a manner... Or get a sperm taking whale. out other atoms, I guess, to get a sperm whale is so improbable. So that's why it's part of the improbability drive. Exactly. Uh, Which is a good... It's a, it, like The improbability drive itself is a really fun piece of humor throughout the yeah, way that they just, reference it. It just causes this strange chaos. And I think what you enjoy most for on the first read of this, at least what I did, is just... He just takes your mind into these fantastical, imaginative places that you would just never go mm -hmm. because it's not even world creation. It's world disruption in a sense. Yeah. I I would say it was what was really fun about reading it, you know, at this age for the first like because this is it's not a kid's book it and it's not even a teen book like it's it's you can read it as an adult and be totally like enjoy it. But it's definitely not. It, it like it's a, the the humor it does skirt that line of juvenile to adult style of joke, and so it was fun to kind of read a book, definitely intended for at least someone young at heart, as someone who is older and yet still young at heart. Like it was fun to have all of the tools that I've gained in my life, but to see a book like this, and I think just from the book itself, what I enjoyed the most was how all of these intergalactic aliens i guess or species so the vogons and what was that mother one the, the dinner ass is that what they're called yeah yeah and the, and the, like the a handful of others whatever. they have all of this massive technology and ability and like trans galaxy transportation abilities and yet they still have all of these petty human emotions or petty human like little <laughs> quirks about them I read the one of the lines I wrote down that I thought was so funny because the Vogans and the Denaras are different species of aliens and they don't really get along with each other. I think the Denaras are like the servants of the Vogans. Yeah, or they something cook like for that. them and 
Yeah, and so then the only kind of Vogon a Denaras liked to see was an annoyed Vogon. <laughs> so yeah, basically their their greatest joy is to annoy the Vogons. But the Vogons like being annoyed because they like yelling. Like their favorite thing to do is yeah. yell at them. So they people. actually like to be annoyed. <laughs> exactly. But it, like it's just so weird. It's not weird. It's funny how you you're getting these aliens who can do intergalactic travel and who still have these really funny. I just can't imagine they'd have these hangups if they had this technology. But I mean, like that's. There's no proof for that, right? No. <laughs> I think the, the, one of the, my favorite concepts in uh, this book is the babblefish, right? Uh, the, the passage on the babblefish. So the babblefish is a creature that somehow evolved to live off of brain, the brainwave energy, but not the brainwaves of the creature that it is um, living in symbiosis with, but or a symbiotic relationship with, but creatures outside of that creature and then it interprets so basically yeah. and you put it, them in your ear you put them in your ear and then they can translate any language so you basically <laughs> have a full understanding of any language it's obviously a funny trope but then the way that he goes into it and says and many people have used the babblefish as true as proof of god yeah. because <laughs> such a creature could not possibly have evolved <laughs> well apparently i mean this is like outside the book aside it just reminded me of by talking about that so apparently the word babble like to babble is, comes from the tower com- of babel. comes from the tower of babel because it's like to babble means to sit, well i guess it can mean to talk a lot and not say much but it also could be like a incoherent sounds yes which yes. is where well a baby babbling yeah right? yeah and so that's why that word is the way it is apparently which even if that's apocryphal <laughs> i still choose to believe that that's the right interpretation because it yeah lines up nice with um you know, stories we have of history. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I just like how... So obviously, Douglas Adams is a huge atheist and uses a lot of his, really? his humor. To... I did not know that that was obvious. Oh, okay. How did you... like? Was there uh, something he, in the he, book he, that would make that obvious? Well, he frequently comments on it outside of these books. I oh, guess. okay. But, uh, but a lot of his humor... And he's also the fav- one of the favorite humorists of like Hitchens, actually, and, uh, sure, yeah. and Sam Harris and... And obviously Elon Musk and and people like that. But one of the things I find fascinating is his treatment of the ridicule that he heaps on religion and God. But basically, the whole point of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy from a philosophical level appears to be, look at how ridiculous the infinity of the universe is. Yeah. Right? Like, when you look up at the stars and it's incomprehensible, he's like... What he's talking about, space is really, really big. He's like, sometimes people use like a walnut in, well, he uses other cities, but I'll say a walnut in Chicago Mm -hmm. compared to, you know, a marble in LA. He's like, no, it's way bigger than that. Yeah. And there's this line that I absolutely love where he's like, you know, the speed of light. He's like, which most sentient beings take a long time to even realize has a speed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess part of the joke is how far behind even the starting line humans are in their conception of any of these things exactly like how far away things are <laughs> it's like five years for the light of our sun to just get to alpha centauri yeah like how you if you were going to be intergalactic how far we still have to go to even get to the starting line <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> which is pretty funny yeah because he also has that uh, like right at the early part of the book well and also just we should mention for anyone who doesn't know the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy the name of the book comes from ford a prefect prefect. is his last name yeah he is a kind of like a travel guide or not a guide like a travel writer yes he's a travel blogger he's a travel blogger right he's the og travel blogger (laughs) because he's doing it 
intergalactically. And so he's been on the Earth writing because he's got this Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a book. I mean, it's not an actual book. It's a kind of an index. Well, like a Kindle. Yeah, but it's like, I, I, I mean, they probably make this a lot clearer in the movie. Visually, I get the sense that it's kind of like a digital index shaped like a book that can open up. And it's essentially like Wikipedia, but for the entire known universe. Yes, exactly. And so there are obviously billions and billions and billions of interesting and funny things to learn about. And part of the humor of the book is uh, when Arthur Dent, our protagonist, has a free moment, he just kind of listens to parts of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So there's like a lot of funny exposition heavy things well and there's this <laughs> go great, on in this book there's this great from trope the where he's got the encyclopedia galactica and he'll quote from what they say about something in that and then it will go and quote what the hitchhiker's guide has to say about it the mm-hmm. hitchhiker's guide is always more slapsticky and hilarious yeah and, and practical yeah whereas the takes you know, itself a little less seriously yeah, the in- encyclopedia galactica is more dry and like <laughs> and, and factual and yeah. straight to the point yeah and, yeah, I guess so, hey. <laughs> so like I, the Hitchhiker's Guide is the fun version of knowledge. Yes. <laughs> or, it might be the urban dictionary. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wonder what Hitchhiker's Guide is in Urban Dictionary. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, you know that there's some things you could do. Hitchhikers? Oh man. Oh man, it would be yeah. <laughs> guide be... the guide the hitchhikers, right? <laughs> uh but like just to return to that idea of the scale. Um, really early in the book, I th- and so I'm pretty sure this is, it's either described in the Hitchhiker's Guide or it's dis- it's a- explaining humans, and carbon-based life form descended from an ape. <laughs> and then the whole point of this is how unimpressive that description is if you have a cosmic perspective. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. Like your marble and your walnut in different analogy cities, yeah. a little bit earlier. And it's supposed, I think... The intuition, and it's not, it's like a small intuition, but I think it's there that is being tapped into here by Adams is this, it's a similar feeling I think you get if you read Slaughterhouse-Five, the Kurt Vonnegut novel, with the the Trowel Fomadorians, I think I'm saying that right, there's the alien race in that book who basically at one point have our main character Billy Pilgrim in a zoo, (laughs) because they want to just observe, and these are creatures that can you know see like live at all times but they're just like oh my gosh i can't believe they used to live like this so it's like the idea the idea of like when we go to a zoo maybe and we see animals and we have this kind of bias of the smallness of their world and yet obviously once you kind of start to get a sense of how big the universe is that would just be us yeah. To some other creature. Like, it is. And what other. And then, and then the next step is okay, with that perspective, what do I need to start taking seriously or care about? Yes, exactly. I think that's really the whole purpose of this book and what I love about it so much is the humbling nature of the vast expanse of time and space made into make us think that everything we kind of think is ridiculous mm-hmm. <laughs> when measured against infinity, right? Totally. And I actually think that that idea itself, is, and it might go back earlier than this, but to me, I get a sense of that even from Socrates. Yes. Yeah. You know, because his, um, his idea, or not his idea, I mean, I, well, it is the idea that Socrates was the wisest man in 
Athens or Greece, I can't remember. And it was because he was the one who knew the extent of his own ignorance. Like he's the only one who knew that he didn't know very much. Whereas all the other wise men, quote unquote, were the ones who were pretty confident in their knowledge or thought that they had, they knew a lot or knew enough. And I think the best way to articulate in maybe a modern sense of that idea from Socrates is the idea that, I mean, if you get a sense when you start hearing things like billions of stars and billions of galaxies, obviously the numbers collapse into just words because we can't really, we don't have an intuition for billion of anything. (laughs) But I don't even think we realistically have an intuition for a million. Sure. But when you think about what that could mean of everything out there in the world, I think that cosmic humility is a good way to think about, okay, I know a decent amount about some things in modern Canada and the modern world, but all of history, all of geography, all of space and time, like that's just an obvious nth degree exponential amount of things I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. It, like that's a perfect way to describe that sort of attitude. Well, this delves into something that I think is incredibly important to understand in order to have any sort of enlightenment, and that is the idea of subjectivity versus objectivity. And this is something that I learned, unfortunately, rather late in life, like about 19 or 20 years old, when I was reading The Sacred Canopy by Peter Berger. And within within that, it, it just made me realize how finite the human mind is and how regardless of any sort of education or learning, you will always be interacting with everything in, in a subjective manner. And all objective claims, this is the beauty of science, all objective claims must be tested by other subjective beings in order to have any sort of validity because I could be insane. I could be nuts. I could actually have lost my mind and have no idea. That there that's is occurred. evidence for such a thing. <laughs> Yeah, like I might be nuts. <laughs> and uh walnuts. <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> it that is something that has troubled me a lot but actually given me a lot of freedom because it allows me to say, okay, it allows me to do what Socrates did and said I don't know. Yeah, and it's a model for obviously in like the Socratic method of asking questions about things, getting an answer finding something in that answer to ask a next question about and on and on forever is the birth, I think, of the scientific method and what you're referencing earlier about the scientific method of corrective. So correct, like peer review. Less kind of wrong, thing. right? Like, yeah, yeah, less wrong. But I also mean like the involvement of other people mm-hmm. who have some sort of motivation to, as it were, show that you're wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because right. of that kind of, I guess, probably natural human impulse to compete compete and and when you come across something you don't quite think is right you're like oh yeah i gotta i gotta bring that other person down a little bit because they're not right (laughs) (laughs) they're saying they're right and they can't possibly be and i think that that's also a good model for i guess social scientific or softer scientific or just kind of argumentation philosophically in the marketplace of ideas the reason that you get better ideas in the world is a bunch of ideas get thrown out there and then you socially correct them. Yeah, in some it's, way it's or a lot, another. lot of it's trial and error. And like, 
Um, actually, I know I've mentioned this blog a lot, but I'm going to keep doing it because I love it. Uh, Wait But Why has, is doing a series called The Story of Us. One of their most recent posts is about the social thought and social communication. And one of the things he points out is that society will throw negation at any idea that's outside of the mainstream. Mm. So the example that he uses is smoking. And he says that smoking used to everyone accepted that it was fine and that it, there was nothing wrong with it and it wasn't damaging. And then there was this out of the mainstream idea that it caused cancer. And what society will do is attack an idea that's outside of the mainstream, say it's wrong, try to disprove it. But the analogy he uses is a needle in a haystack. And if it's hay, it's just going to disintegrate. But if you keep throwing stuff at a needle, it just stays there. It doesn't disintegrate. Yeah. And that's how you know what something is true. And that's a, a form <laughs> of societal scientific method. But going back to what we were saying about subjectivity, we look at the interesting model that Douglas Adams is building here with when he begins the very beginning of the book with Arthur Dent, very concerned about his personal situation, yeah. which is that his house is about to be mowed over. Mm -hmm. And not even comprehending the also seemingly meaningless and pointless reality of the universe is about to destroy everything he knows. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I think... That's a great reflection. Like the joke there is so like how nonchalantly even the destruction of the earth is perpetrated and understood and received by like every other being in the book. Yeah, like <laughs> this isn't a this isn't a you know alien invasion in which humanity conquers all or you know some epic struggle maybe they fail. It's just a rock in the way. It's just a rock in the way. And I think that's shocking when you read it the very first time, when you think of it for the first time, but it's so uh, refreshing perspective-wise to think, oh, yeah. yeah. And that, that contrast is kind of omnipresent in this book. And I think part of, I guess, this book is only a little bit about Arthur, but his kind of journey in it is starting to develop a bigger perspective. Because, I mean, this just dovetails nicely what you're saying, like kind of early in the book when he's talking to Ford in the bar – he's worried about all the other people in the bar overhearing their conversation because Ford is talking about some kind of crazy well, he's talking about the end of the universe. Yeah, the end of the universe. Sorry, <laughs> the, the end of the earth. And I mean, obviously the thing here is that Arthur is like really self-conscious about this conversation and yet no one is looking because you know, given that they're people, everyone is all everyone else in the bar is just so involved in their own lives. <laughs> that Exactly. That uh and it, I remember seeing um a t-shirt one time and it's like these two people on a date and the thought bubble there's like all of these thought bubbles going on in their heads and all of them are wondering what the other person is thinking about them at that time. <laughs> yeah know? it's like yeah and and yet with the backdrop of the earth about to get blown up and no one actually caring about that other than like the people <laughs> and they don't even know no it was just a fun little reminder i guess of the it's like a priority calibration. Yeah. Kind of thing. Like, why yeah. do you actually care about what other people in the bar over here, if, especially if you're talking about something you are, find interesting? Like, obviously, in the book, Arthur is kind of more thinking that Ford is just kind of crazy. But, you know, who gives a shit? You know, just if, if I were Arthur, I guess it could be just like a fun, oh, okay, so what? what's going to happen? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like even if you think it's nonsense, you can indulge it a bit for humor's sake and who cares what 
the other people in the bar but it's like it's doesn't like that's easy to say i mean i i still catch it in myself like that kind of social self-consciousness that is ever present for i know and that's something else that i was i was thinking about because arthur seems somewhat consumed by social subconsciousness and I was thinking even last night I was with uh, one of my best friends and we were we went on a walk in the countryside at night to look at the stars, which is a phenomenal experience. Always really enjoyable in rural Canada. You don't get to do it as much in the city, so it's nice when, when you can. And we were walking out of the driveway. We were laughing and it turned out that someone else was walking by that we couldn't see because it was so dark. And like it's funny how you how the closer you get with someone the more ridiculous you you can be because you don't really care anymore. You can be the the part of yourself that isn't calibrated to society necessarily. Yeah, you can be silly. And one of the things I love about Douglas Adams is he's ridiculous. Like he's childishly ridiculous. Yeah, with every single moment of that of this book, and it somehow works, and people love it. It's 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 him creating art out of the things that he enjoys and makes him laugh. Yeah. And I mean, one of the great joys of old friends is you can afford to be stupid with them. He has a book called The Dark Tea Time of the Soul. I just think that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And just as a, another little thing that he writes about in terms of this, like, he actually kind of referenced the, there's a psychological component here that makes that gap difficult that he references. It's kind of near the end of the book. And one of his characters says, looking into the night sky is looking into infinity. Distance is incomprehensible and therefore meaningless. And so that made me think of the edges of psychology versus the edges of actuality. And it's kind of like an optical illusion that because we just can't understand big numbers. I I think traditionally, because of the limits of our psychology and our intuition were what they were. And we didn't have things like the scientific method and the corrective functionality of a particular process that is, that is intent is error correction that, that actually has been like, like that it's that kind of psych psychological thing that has produced all of the gods in the pantheon of gods that, people still worship and no longer worship you know and attributing animism and intention to things like the wind in the trees or the wind in the grass you know or the the moving of a river and I remember um I I I, to me one of the great maybe the greatest achievement ever in human history is our systematic error correction functionality of science and logic if i think done properly <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know because yeah, well i mean I, you said this to me once and i thought it was really fascinating but like science gave us the car it actually works and we've talked about this on the podcast before but i think it's another thing that that douglas adams points out that i think we should bring up is like things that we can't understand technology wise are, are equivalent to magic yeah and you know, not that I think an improbability drive is something we could actually create even at any point, but it's fascinating to think that what we have now—I mean, we've talked to our grandma about this before. Right. The things, the changes she's seen, she's seen from the horse and buggy mm-hmm. to landing on the moon to, to the internet what you have today, where yeah. all of the information of the world is in your pocket. <laughs> exactly, like yeah, it's uh, it's magical. Well, because it's also it, so. This is a really cool thing that I learned about 
science, I guess, from listening to, I think this was a point made by Sam Harris, where he said that science is not actually in tension with religion, because if you can imagine, like, I think his point was, what would prove Christianity? Well, he's like, well, you know, maybe if you're standing outside and all of a sudden a seam rips open in the sky and you see God come through and Jesus and he kind of walks down through the sky to the land and says, hi, I'm Jesus. Um, Christianity was, in fact, the true <laughs> the true worldview. And here I am. What would happen then is that you would start to have the science of Christianity. Right. You would You would have people studying. Well, how'd you do that? <laughs> like how did you rip open the seams of the sky like that's a that's a new interesting thing in the laws of physics we haven't taken into account yet like is there some is there something quantum mechanical there or like like the scientific mindset is still there <laughs> to start yeah. asking questions like doesn't, doesn't change so when did you, do you actually are you made out of um particular molecules that are actually lighter than the friction of air and that's why you can like you can turn it off maybe is there like a condenser of your cells that allow that are you even made of cell like what are you what are you made of like can we take it to the lab and obviously this is like a little tongue-in-cheek because a lot of the points made by religious apologists are that all of these things are ineffable so you couldn't study them but what i'm saying is Anything that could become empirically testifiable to the truth of Christianity would be under the strictures of the scientific method as well. And so then you would just have the science of Christianity. And and so all of this, though, is a long-winded way of me saying that I actually think all of this is psychology. Because I remember uh, Dinesh D'Souza. You know Dinesh? He, I remember an argument he made one time talking to, to Hitchens in a debate about why there are so many different kinds of, why there's so many different gods, right? Like, well, okay, you believe in Jesus, but this guy believes in Hanuman, this guy believes in Allah, this guy, this girl believes in, um, you know, Jehovah, etc. Uh, you know, why not Buddha? <laughs> and then Dinesh D'Souza gave the point of, imagine, he gave the uh, analogy of, you're standing at the bottom of a mountain and you're getting one tributary of a river and that's your religion. But actually, if you go to the top of the mountain, the water is coming from one place and it's just, you get your own. It's basically like that story with the seven men and the elephant. Yes. You kind of yeah. see which part of it you're or a part of, right? the diamond, yeah. Now, obviously, <laughs> fundamentalists of any given religion would balk at that just as much as I, a secularist, <laughs> would because there's an impurity to the belief there of saying, well, it's just where you are, and then that's the truth. But I would just turn that entire analogy on its head as like, well, yeah, of course all the cultures in the world have different gods because we've all evolved from the same species. <laughs> we have like such a, on a cosmic level, such an overlapping psychology that of course we're going to start seeing things in the water and in the fire and in the wind because all those things happen everywhere in the world anyway. And we all evolved with the same, almost the same brain. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, it is funny to look at the similarities of, of religions and cultures and to think, well, I mean, it just goes to show how crazy it is to think that you're unique, like, like actually unique in the way you think or the way you are. Uh, we're all like, and this goes to the the concept that I wanted to go back to on the subjectivity 
objectivity, science, bringing that all together is when you understand yourself as an, as an object, as having object belief, objective beliefs. So, so, so something that is an actual and full comprehension of reality that produces a barrier between you and everybody else. Yeah. But okay. Do you know anyone who says that? Oh, I, I would say that like fundamentalist uh, Christians definitely believe they understand the objective nature okay. of reality. All right, fair enough. <laughs> they, they would now now they would say it's revelation. Okay, right. So they wouldn't say that they obtained it. They would say it was given to them. Sure, but they would still say they know it. Okay, and I would say that the issue I have with that is it immediately creates what I think is the biggest problem in human society, which is tribalism. It's yeah, a well, us versus them. Well, it's, and it's a such a deep that is such a deep problem because of the ease <laughs> in our DNA to think that way. And well, that this goes back to the delusion that we all suffer under that we are the most important thing in the universe that's baked into our very biology because our consciousness is only able to fully be aware of itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything else is translated to us. Yeah, I think that that's probably one of the deeper messages of this book is that all the jokiness of the prose and the style aside, this book is a very wholesome and timely reminder of the necessity to be open and thoughtful about the things that haven't happened directly to you. Yeah. Well, like the conclusion <laughs> of the book is that Earth was a gigantic computer created by mice yeah. in order to find out the question to the answer of the universe because we all know that the answer to the life of the universe and everything is 42. David, prove it isn't. <laughs> well, you can't. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I it's like that's a kind of I mean, that's a perennial thought too taking the cosmic perspective which again you can't actually because we don't have any into it like there are limits of intuition for sure in any of this and i think that that's what is really being exposed in that one line i read earlier about the night sky looking like it's infinity because it's just too big like there's numbers that are just too big for us it might as well be infinity i guess the point is that once it's been described to you or pointed out to you. It's like it's the same thing with an optical illusion. Once the optical illusion is pointed out to you and you can see what it is about a picture that's tricking your eyes, I guess it's you're holding two ideas. It's that you're you it's not like your eyes don't get tricked. It's like you can still look at the illusion and see both and just switch perspective and you you still see the illusion. But it's not like you don't understand that there's an illusion. Right? Exactly. Like you you yeah. still have the cognitive operational activity to understand that your eyes are being tricked and i think it's the same thing with what he's talking about here with space is that it's kind of like a psychology illusion the infiniteness looking of space is a psychology illusion that isn't going to go away from your visual no <laughs> cortices still gonna, right still look but infinite, at a cognitive yeah. level you can still understand that that solution and i actually think that is an amazing feature about the human species is that Humans seem to, well, I mean, we will never know. Well, not, sorry, I won't say that. We might, we don't know now, I don't think, what other animals would think about this. But we seem to be a species that can both have an illusion, experience it, go through all the motions of the illusion, and know it's an illusion. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is interesting. And I think that one of the great games, because like I am as 
prone to these illusions as anyone else. But what I think is so important is to remember that you can both experience an illusion, which I kind of think, I guess in this analogy, something like Christianity is, and yet go through it, enjoy it, and at the cognitive level realize that it's the story I'm choosing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's and, an and important... Then it, but, it takes, but what that does is it takes a lot of the fundamentalist aspects out of it. Well, so I, you don't hurt other people. Exactly. And I think that is what I, I guess that's exactly what I was trying to get at with saying objective versus subjective. I don't think it's wrong to believe a story and to live... I mean, our whole podcast is about stories and their importance to life. And I don't think it's even wrong to live according to a story. But then to take that and use it as a, a method of hating other people or or demeaning other people or looking at other people as lower than you or condemning other people, all of those things, the results are in. Mm-hmm. We know what happens and when you people know what? do that. Once you start experiencing these things, you see the psychology at work because even something like Star Wars, when... I come up to someone and says, oh, their favorite Star Wars movie is like <laughs> yes. The Last Jedi or Revenge yeah, you, of the you, Sith. You, you, I'm like, heretic, <laughs> blasphemer. <laughs> and yet, I mean, obviously, Star Wars is human created and terrestrial and we can trace its origins very easily. And yet even still, my psychological attachment to the original trilogy makes you makes feel it, like makes their opinion feel, is wrong. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and so like imagine that psychological attachment to something that is 2000 plus years old and it's your identity and it's your family's identity and it's what you've been doing for you like i get it yeah like the psychological yeah. attachment to the stories i get but i guess it's just also your like level of analysis how above your own reactions can you get cognitively well, and it goes, and we, and we do like yeah. that's what's amazing about people is that you can do that like i can still say to myself oh, you know what? It's just a movie. <laughs> like, it's totally fine that it's just a story. I mean, I can argue about the truth of Star Wars, as it were, but if I'm really hating someone because their favorite movie is The Last Jedi, I'm just like one sect of Christianity hating another sect of Christianity, you know? Well, that's, Like, I think it's the same thing. I agree. I think it's the same impulse in the human soul to... Well, but... but I think that actual the psychological the the psychological defense that's happening right now is the need for meaning and purpose. And so in order to need or to get meaning and purpose from this belief system that you have, you need other people to be wrong, <laughs> which I don't understand uh, on a on a rational level. Like why is it so important for other people to be wrong, for you to be right. Uh, there's probably other really good psychological analysis for that, like the scapegoat effect or um, having a common enemy. I think we talked about this in Lord of the Rings. Having a common enemy is very mobilizing yes. <laughs> for oh, people. Yeah, I understand the political ra- rationale for it, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but even, even psychologically. I, I, to me, I agree with the synopsis that politics is downstream from culture and culture is downstream from psychology. Right. And psychology is downstream from the laws of physics <laughs> and biology. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and we would have to, like, we can analyze anything at any particular level. But I just think that for anything social, you have to start at the level of psychology. And why our psychologies are the way they are is an interesting question for science. 
And yes. I, yes. And, and again, this book just points out really nicely how our psychologies fail <laughs> to comprehend things much bigger than what has happened to me or to us. Well, like, like if let's use the most, um, let's say, culturally relevant example from this book to, to make this point. What so this this group of other dimensional beings asks the greatest computer ever constructed what is the meaning of life and it takes seven point five million years for the computer to work out the answer and the answer is forty two <laughs> and now this is <laughs> a little anticlimactic <laughs> and everyone's like oh no and then they're like you know how could it be forty two like what does that even mean and then what does the computer say you're asking you're asking me this question this is the answer maybe you need to fully understand the question Mm -hmm. and i think often in science that is a problem that that is experiences we're asking the wrong questions like uh, and i think the beauty of science is that everyone gets to ask these questions and hopefully we actually come to a state of being less wrong simply because we have asked more questions because we aren't even going to necessarily know if we're asking the right questions Mm mm-hmm and I just would want to also clarify that just because we do have optical illusions, I still think our sense data is the best way to collect. Our senses are still the best way to collect data because it's the only way that we can share. Like the beautiful thing about data, the whole point of it, I guess, is that you can share it with other people. The idiosyncratic experiences of a person are you can talk about them, but there's not like a way that can be analyzed with a common factor, right? If you think about like chemicals or the periodic table, like the whole point of that, well, not the whole point because I'm not a chemist. It's so that it's comprehensible to other people who read it in a way that is measurable. (laughs) And I think the things that are measurable come through sense data for the most part as best as possible, the best we know. So it's not like, because our eyes can be tricked by optical illusions, you shouldn't trust your eyes. It's just really useful to know that they can be tricked sometimes. And I would say, <laughs> don't trust only your eyes. Yeah. Right? Yeah, this is the, the again, I can't overemphasize the necessity of the peer review, someone coming up with an antithesis to your thesis so that you come in with a synthesis, and then that becomes the new thesis, and on and on and on, right? And how you just continue to build knowledge that way. And here is what is so crucial, I guess, from a social perspective, is that you actually need the people who disagree with you the most. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In order to actually become wiser and and more enlightened, you need people to disagree with you. Now, obviously, I don't mean people who would disagree with you to the level of being violent. No, no. (laughs) Disagree with you to the level of complete opposite opinion on a subject. Yes, yes. (laughs) Because that's actually how you refine what you think more and more. I mean, there's just so much great argumentation for this line of thought. Obviously, the best is John Stuart Mill and how you need people who have contrary opinions because that's how you have a more vital truth because it keeps you fresh and on your toes with it. So so what did you think of the characters in this book, Luke? Or what, did you think they were... I, like you said, it's not a adult... It's not like a an East of Eden novel, or it's not a character uh, sketch. It's very much a comedy sketch, in a sense. But I mean, I didn't hate any of the characters, I guess. They were very much uh, fine. They were enjoyable. I mean, yeah, I think that 
this is a book about kind of themes. So you just, I don't know, I guess nondescript. <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean that that's in a kind nice, of what, I mean that in a nice way. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it too. You can't really delve into their characters or, or even the events. Well, it's not a very long book either. No, yeah, it's only 176 pages or 78 pages, I think. Uh, and, and breezy reading. And really well, breezy. Like, some of the some lines words are, are hard. Like, I mean, there's some, like, non-intuitive words, because it's, like, kind of science fiction gar- uh, not well, garbage, this jargon. Is a, this is another thing that I would like to point out. A lot of the things in this book are uh, caricatures of very well-used um, science fiction tropes. For yeah. example, um, the computer being asked the question, well... The last question is a very famous short story by Isaac Asimov in which a computer is asked what the meaning of life is and mm-hmm. spends the rest of the life, life cycle of the universe trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of tropes like this. But one of the things I like most about this book is just <laughs> the factual factual way in which he makes ludicrous claims about the universe. Yeah, that, that's true. But But then backs up with... In an infinite universe, anything is possible, right? (laughs) Any permeation of things is possible. Yeah. uh, Which I think is hilarious. No matter how improbable. So in a later book, uh, there's a planet of uh, mattresses that are actually sentient. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, like there's just things like that that Mm -hmm. just is very funny. Well, then we'd have the science of sentient mattresses. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I mean, like... There are some funny lines in the book that made me think a little bit about more character type stuff or like more common human emotional and psychological and social happen, you know, goings ons. And so one of them is Jeltz, who is a Vogon, I think. And he writes, I've just had an unhappy love affair, so I don't see why anyone else should have a good time. Yes, this is when he doesn't <laughs> let anyone else on the ship go on leave when they're in port. because because yeah, he's in a bad mood, so everyone else should be in a bad mood. And, you know, I mean, that's not, it's, it doesn't take a genius to see why that's, uh, you know, not a particularly life-affirming attitude or something that you might want to pursue because that's obvious self-pity. But... I do think that one of the great maturities of life is working hard to not bring other people down when you feel down because it's there's like a very instant gratification you get from like giving a snappy remark to someone if you're in a bad mood or a it's like a weird release you get where it's like yeah well you know at least you still have someone or just like that desire to lash out a bit, I think is very comprehensible to me. But we, we see this with Marvin too, the, mm-hmm. the depressive robot. He's like, don't talk to me about life. I'm 50,000 times smarter than you. And there's my, my view of the universe. Yeah. Marvin seems more programmed to be disinterested or uninterested in humans. Whereas, well, no, I mean like think about it. He, he, he makes a spaceship commit suicide. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. I Marvin, Marvin's a bit of a downer. He's a, he's a melancholic. I don't think Jeltz was a melancholic here. No, though. he was no. more of a just in a bad mood. So he thought everyone else should be in a bad mood, and like obviously that's not mature. <laughs> no, man, <laughs> you know, yeah, you shouldn't. There's the joke there. there. And then oh, here's something that Ford said that I really did like. 
and I guess this dovetails with something. Oh, and and this is probably actually the best example in the book of Adams, Douglas Adams' secularism or atheism, I guess, where he writes, isn't it enough to see a garden is beautiful without believing there are fairies at the bottom of it? And I kind of take this as a secular take on aesthetics. So to me, this seems so kind of apparent, but maybe it's not where you come across something that is aesthetically pleasing, like a garden or, you know, a beautiful building or a beautiful landscape, let's say. And you enjoy it, it's great, but then there's the next desire to attribute something more deep to it or more meaningful than what it is. And who knows where that comes from? I mean, I think probably philosophically it comes originally from Plato and the idea of the forms where it's like it's not just a beautiful garden, but like the form of the garden deeper than the garden. Like this garden is just one example of a for, of the idea of a garden that exists somewhere out there well, yeah, floating t- around t- in the Thomas world. Thomas Aquinas takes that even further theologically and calls it the difference between the accident and the substance, right? Sure. There's the accidental reality of something and the substantial reality of something, mm-hmm. which is how he explains like transubstantiation in the Eucharist, right? There's the right. substantial reality of the bread and wine, but then there's, or sorry, there's the accidental reality of the bread and wine, but then there's the substantial reality of the blood, oh, blood and body of That's Christ. cool. I never actually so, yeah, knew he, that that's he, why it was called transubstantiation well yeah because he takes it uh he takes in order to explain the eucharist or the catholic idea of the eucharist he takes the platonic Mm -hmm. idea of the ideal versus the temporal reality right and you know this could be a temperament thing adams is pumping a very easily pumped intuition of mine when he writes that because yeah when i look at something beautiful it doesn't need to be more than it is to me like i don't need the things that I find beautiful in the world to be anything beyond what they appear to me to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I understand that. Although I, I'm a, I have a propensity to like to believe in fairies. <laughs> well, I mean, as uh, long as they're in Zelda, <laughs> the great like, fairies. Uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, Neverwhere is, in, is a great novel that we might do, but I just absolutely adore his his representation of that and i mean who doesn't like a good story where there's something underneath well <laughs> my favorite memory of fairies like i mentioned is legend of zelda ocarina of time and i remember when the great fairy reveals herself and she's pretty scantily clad and i mean at the time the 1998 graphics were incredible but now they're kind of blotchy and patchy <laughs> right but i remember that great fairy comes out and i'm just and i was like 11 I remember thinking, oh, man, I really hope my parents don't walk in the room right now because they will not let me play this game anymore if they see what that great fairy is wearing. She's not wearing very much. And she's like a little bit seductive. It is weird because Link is still a kid at this time. Like she seems interested. Anyway, (laughs) I just think that there is a – it would be – probably worthwhile to point out that there is a huge amount of people in the world who don't need a deeper reason for something beautiful yes yes because uh, it's the I way it affects right. you and the way you experience it is the point of it but on that note uh, my, my favorite passage is just one paragraph that i that i want to read but it's um it's for it's it's douglas adam talking about ford uh, prefix perspective on humans yeah, and I just think this is a great uh, example of Douglas Adams' humor and also his insights. He says, One of the things that Ford had always found hardest to understand about humans was their habit of continually stating and repeating the very, very obvious, as in, It's a nice day, or You're very tall, or Oh dear, you seem to have fallen down a 30-foot well. Are you all right? 
<laughs> At first, Ford had formed a theory to account for this strange behavior. If human beings don't keep exercising their lips, he thought, their mouths pr- probably seize up. After a few months' consideration and observation, he abandoned this theory in favor of a new one. If they don't keep exercising their lips, he thought, their brains start working. (laughs) Start working. (laughs) After a while, he abandoned this one as well as being obstructively cynical and decided he quite liked human beings after all, but he always remained desperately worried about their terrible, the terrible number of things they didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that would be the perspective taken of a being who just had so much more knowledge than us perhaps future ai yeah or or like an alien that would come and just have a general or you know the way we seem to feel about insects maybe (laughs) yeah exactly and i just i love uh because he takes something that we've all experienced which uh just just yesterday uh, i was walking with a friend having a good chat and one of the phrases that kept coming up was the older i get and we're like, the older we get, the more we say, the older we get. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, why are we repeating this phrase? Uh, and it happens all the time with humans. And I just, I love that he takes something like that and then uses it to make a joke and then has Ford be like, ah, yes, but, you know, humans are, and again, reiterating this. People don't know things. They don't. Yeah. They're, they're... Well, I think what you're getting at there is the power of a mimetic way of thinking that kind of is so when you use the phrase, the older I get, what you're signaling to your friend or anyone else who would be around is that you are contextualizing what you're about to say next in a culturally pre-described box of, okay, this is the kind of general, like I'm about to talk to you about something I've learned. So rather than go through the idiosyncrasies of explaining the details of what I've learned, I'm setting the stage for you by giving you this expression that we can, so now your attention is oriented to the, oh, David is talking now about something, a reflection. So I actually don't have to pay attention to other contexts where he's talking about things like exposition or information or complaint. Like this is a completely separate level. Of, so obviously the literal, the older I get is absurd. Right. But what I think you're doing there, and I and so like these are how heuristics work they kind of orient people's attention to a general category that you're now talking about so that they can cognitively and subconsciously offload all the other things you could be talking about, which this is something that becomes humor when you go teach English in another country because because the cultural artifacts of your expressions and your idioms and your memes don't always easily translate. So... Uh, just as a funny like example, I remember when I would first be teaching English in Korea, and I would say to a kid, say, okay, so you didn't do your homework? And they would say, yes. Yes, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> now, why? Right. Like, obviously, they're just answering the question literally, yes, I did not do the homework. Whereas here, we would say, no, I didn't. So here, we're just affirming as opposed to there where they're answering. Right. <laughs> Which is right. a little different, right? And so... I don't even know why I started riffing on this other than I think that there are social psychology reasons for why we say these kind of things like the older I get. And yet that's something like Ford wouldn't be able to understand right. because he is an alien. <laughs> or or it's a nice day. Why are we actually saying that? There's probably, a, a like you said, a sociological reason for yeah. it. That and, and I think that what's fun about that too is that it does kind of show – because there is a kind of – 
um, satisfaction, I think, that people get from having someone culturally understand them so that they don't have to go through the rigmarole of explaining things. And Ford, you know, this is one of the hard things about being in a completely different culture is that you don't get these yeah. little these little signals, cultural signals given to each other or expressions, you know? It's true. But you can still understand them when they're explained to you. And I like that. And 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 I like it because it's a kind of it's kind of like a fun way people are with each other. And I think it makes it harder if you're not a curious person. But if you're a curious person and you enjoy learning about things like that, then suddenly you can be like, oh, like for example, in Serbia, there's a phrase, "polaka," and it basically means slow down. <laughs> you're going too fast. Yeah. Like, okay, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and like I love that, and I say it all the time, like "polaka," right? It's like <laughs> totally. But there is still a um. Again, if you want to have the cosmic perspective, there is something a little bit funny about that. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> so, page 146, Deep Thought, the computer that... This is the computer that made Earth? This is the computer that made... Yes, that, that gave them the... Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, there were a... There's a couple... So, there's two characters that are waiting to see what the computer says. And then there's a scene where a couple other characters who are philosophers... They barge in. And they they like, barge in. This and, must be shut down. And they're unhappy, not because the deep thought will find the true answer to the meaning of the universe, but because if deep thought comes up with the true answer, they'll be out of a job because it's their job to kind of... as I think they say something like give interpretations of the truth of the universe. So these are... They're philosophers in the or book. Or speculation. But I think or... they're supposed to also... They represent a kind of mystical philosopher, but also like the kind of shamans or preachers or... They're, they're the... They represent the class of people whose job it is to kind of guide people, but without giving them any final answers to anything. Modern iterations of this would also be kind of abstract pop psychology self-help types. And so Deep Thought, I can't remember exactly, but Deep Thought says that, don't worry, it's going to be a long time and you can fight with me about this. Like you can make me the scapegoat. And then Deep Thought says, so long as you can keep disagreeing with each other violently enough and slagging each other off in the popular press, and so long as you have clever agents, you can keep yourselves on the gravy train for life. And the little idea I had about that was like, that is maybe the best description of modern media. Modern mainstream media right now is clever agents slagging the other side, and they're just on the gravy train because of this. Yeah, I call them merchants of rage. Yes. Like and... They 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 trade in creating emotions in people like the most powerful emotions that people have are are fear and love right but there's another one that's very powerful and it's disgust mm-hmm. and disgust is usually reserved for people who live outside of your norms yeah i i love things like this because this is a perfect example of something that's a psychological observation not a technological observation because you know, this book is written in 1979. This is before massive, I mean, I don't know if it was before like CNN, but I think it was before the 24-hour no, before the, I would say it was before the 24-hour news cycle. And certainly before the internet. Yeah. And certainly before the ease of which. So, you know, this quote, it makes a lot of sense in the modern technological age, and yet it was written in 1979 or published in 1979. And so I love it when I get it in old novels like Dickens or even older where there's an observation of the human condition that 
is maybe more obvious now because of technology and we see so much more of humanity now than humans have ever seen and yet because it's part of just the way we are <laughs> and how these i guess i would call them sophists too like the the people who through the rhetoric and art of language make the weaker argument seem the better because for them it's not finding the right answer which you know ideally is the philosopher's goal but it's to create enough diversion so that they continue to be employed <laughs> yes yeah well and it's perverse incentives right because the incentive that they have is to create as viral or as controversial or as um, newsworthy a story as possible in order to get views and clicks and advertising dollars it's making these things into a business i think that becomes the problem because suddenly you are incentivizing people to enrage other people because we all know that like that fear is more powerful than most human emotions so so what do you do talk about things that scare people mm -hmm. well again with that analogy of everything what what everything being downhill from or downstream from psychology economics is downhill from psychology too if you have an entrepreneurial uh i mean i guess i use that term loosely if you have a group who wants to make money pay attention to the way people are exploit that because that's easy money exactly yeah and i mean you can castigate those kind of people till the cows come home if it's profitable they'll keep doing it i think really the antidote is to say to the consumer, hey, get less mad. Yeah. I, oh, I agree. I think the antidote is, is enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's getting above your petty, your narcissism of petty differences. And I know I say that a lot, but I, it's one of my favorite terms. Getting above that and realizing, no, there's a lot more similarity between myself and yeah. the, you know, and the fundamentalist Muslim or myself and the, like there, there's more similarities but than but among all of us than there is differences and it's it's just so i guess it's a tragic element of the book where the two sophists type characters are so easily appeased with deep thought still finding the true answer to the yeah. world like it, it doesn't matter to them because all they're interested in is manipulating the beings out there in the world for personal profit and so what what they the reason it's not like they have any sort of disagree. Truth doesn't matter to though those two characters. No, no. <laughs> it just it, you know, and it's obviously a great cautionary tale of beware of those who's to whom truth does not matter. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. And then to me, my favorite page of the book was the last one. Okay, because I found it to be the most philosophical. Well, I I wouldn't say that now. Actually, talking about this has showed me that there's really interesting philosophical stuff in this book but the very last page of the book and i can't remember it may be deep thought again who says it but how a civilization has three fundamental stages survival inquiry and sophistication how why and where yeah so the survival is how do i eat <laughs> so you know like hunter gatherer finding uh this the inquiry is why do i eat and the sophistication is where to eat <laughs> <laughs> and you know it just 
obviously you can't help but feel like what Adams is saying is that we're actually in the sophistication stage and we're running on the fumes of the inquiry stage. And I think that that's interesting because I do think that, I mean, I don't, I'm not under any illusion that like during the enlightenment, most people were thoughtful (laughs) or curious about the world. And I'm not under the illusion that in the 19th century, everyone was a burgeoning scientist and that was the way of the world all the time, even though, you know, the scientific progress in the 19th century is mind blowing to all centuries before it (laughs) ever. (laughs) And so I'm not like nostalgically romanticizing a historical point, but I do kind of get a sense that we're in a kind of a decadent phase where inquiry seems to be taken, taking uh, like what, what we're doing, like the, or, or why we're doing what we're doing is less important than like where we go do it. I think that you lose some dynamism when you lose your questioning attitude towards things around you, if that makes sense. Well, it's a, it's a curiosity thing. Uh, you're not curious about things anymore. Then you're just testing out different restaurants. Mm-hmm. And I think that sophistication, which is a bit of a confusing word in this, because I actually think sophistication is a word that should be less maligned in this sense than it is. But I mean, so we have this character, Zaphod, 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 Zaphod in the book, who is perfectly personifying the sophistication aspect. Like he wants to find Magrathia, like it's him, but he doesn't really seem to have much substance other than just being noticed. Getting a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So he wants money. And then those two guys we talked about who are on the gravy train now for life. I guess that's what it is. It's the mentality of just profiting from your situation instead of learning about it that I think Adams is tapping into with this last page of the book. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know, like, do you think, like, what would, what are some of the, uh, like, are there indicators of when... When a person is doing that, I suppose. Indicators of when you might be in a culture going from one stage to another is interesting, too. Yeah, well, I think we're definitely in the sophistication stage. I mean, now we don't even have to decide where we're going to go eat. We can decide who's going to bring us food. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I mean, that's true. One of my favorite little uh, quips is, uh, you know, we used to be told not to talk to strangers and not to get into their cars. And now we call strangers on our phones to get to take us places in their cars. Right. Yeah. Like. That's true. The world, the, like the the opulence we live in now is is incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the for cheap, like we can get Ubers for like I mean, yeah, people had carriages before, but like everyone didn't have carriages, yeah. and you couldn't just call them on a whim. Uh, yeah, and I mean, again, I'm not lamenting a rosy history that we've drifted far because of our opulence and our hedonism. Like that's not what I'm saying at all. Because I, I actually think we do so many things better now technologically and ethically than in history. I guess it's kind of more like what, what I do enjoy about a book like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is what I really liked about it is that it reminds me that the balls in my court to think more than is my default and to, to do more than is my default and to put myself out there than more than is my default 
to to try and develop broader perspective than is my default. That's actually nobody else's job than mine. And that kind of lesson or communication gives me a sort of vitality to go out there and try and do new interesting stuff in the world. And that's actually what I would hope, I guess, people people taking that kind of self-responsibility to go out there and make and do new things and keep things vital and interesting and dynamic in a creative or business or whatever sense, you know, just, just not riding on the coattails of something. That is actually how you stave off the late ends of the sophistication stage in a society is that you, you keep a certain kind of like appreciation for where the tradition of your culture, but also improving it and creating a dynamic life that I guess like technically the world doesn't need, <laughs> like the world doesn't no. need humans being above, like, like if you look at it from the cosmic level, humans don't need to be above their default. And if humans went extinct, would it there's no to there's no reason now? to think it would matter. So it's actually it's actually my job to make sure that I don't stagnate like that. Yeah, and no one else's. And I and and like the way that Hitchhiker's Guide gets you out of your own head like that is kind of I think part of what Adams is trying to do in that book. Yeah, and I, and I think one of the points that I'll add is that the banal the banality of evil. Right where it's suddenly some things can become so bureaucratic and simple that you you know you just wipe off an entire uh, planet to you know make way for something because for convenience. Often we I think we have to ask ourselves why are we doing the things that we're doing? What are we progressing towards? Right, we we've talked about it before, but that's the question I would like to leave in everyone's mind. <laughs> yeah, like, would you still care to be doing what you're doing if you knew the Earth was going to blow up in five minutes? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Not a bad way to think about it. I mean, there's that's just a different iteration of no eternal recurrence against, yeah. and yeah, but I, it's still f- more. I love things that are perennial that come back in different forms. Exactly, and 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 Hitchhiker's Guide, I think, is the the perennial take the cosmic perspective, but in a cosmic form because it's a science fiction outer space book (laughs) exactly exactly yeah all right well uh this has been another episode of really true fiction my name is david parker and my name is luke mason and we're very thankful that you listened to us uh wax philosophical on these things (laughs) see you later bye